Good morning. He is risen. You are not lying. That's a fact. That's a fact. Jesus died on a Friday and, was, and rose again on a Sunday morning. He has risen indeed. That's just a fact. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here on, on staff at the Rock Community Church. I am thrilled that you are here. man. I love my God. I love what Jesus did for us. I love you, His church. And I love His Word. And we're going to hear from His Word uh, this morning. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Last year, you may remember, I didn't preach the weekend before Easter weekend because I got to preach four times. And, and uh, so I took the weekend before off and I went to the NASCAR race last year. I don't know if you remember that. It was uh, quite a spectacle. I had a great time. But this year, I didn't preach the weekend before Easter either. So last weekend, I took off, but I did something even better. I came here and listened to Pastor Dave preach out of Ezra 2. It was incredible. Way better than any NASCAR race I've ever been to. Watching Pastor Dave preach out of Ezra 2 was really just a sight to behold. It was incredible. Um, we, if you're new, we go through books of the Bible, and we just started Ezra a few weeks ago. And if the Lord would have you come back next weekend, we'll be in Ezra chapter 3. It's 13 verses long. I always encourage you to read ahead so that you're prepared for next week and to read Ezra chapter 3. But we're going to break away from, from Ezra this morning for an Easter message. Uh, I love this, man. I just love this. I love sharing God's Word with people. I love that I continue to get to learn His Word. So here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to tell you a story. It's an incredible story. It's actually out of the Bible, out of Luke chapter 24. We're going to, we're going to read that story together about the resurrection. And then we're going to pray. And then I'm going to tell you another story that points to the Bible. And then we're going to get into our text. Okay? So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke the Gospel of Luke, Luke's Gospel, his account of Jesus Christ, the last chapter, chapter 24. The book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. The last chapter of Luke. We're going to read this story together and then we're, and then we're going to pray. Thanks for being here. The Lord loves us so much. He loves us so much. And we're going to find out how much today. You guys ready? Cool. Luke 24, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And they, as they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Of course they didn't. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. (laughs) Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee? He told you about this. He said that the Son of Man must be delivered into into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day, which was a Sunday, he'd rise again. And they remembered his words. And returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women uh, with them were telling these things to all the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. Sometimes that happens when God speaks and when God works because our minds, our limited human minds, 
sometimes can't grasp a holy and an almighty God. And so sometimes things can seem nonsense, but God is in control nonetheless. But these words, verse 11, appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter stood up and he ran to the tomb and he stooped in and he looked and he saw linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place that morning. And while they were talking and discussing, (laughs) Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes didn't recognize him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still and looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to Jesus, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and you don't know what's happening? Which is kind of funny, right? He's like, yeah, I kind of do actually. And he said to them, What things? To see what they would say. And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. And we are hoping that he, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb earlier this morning and they didn't find his body and they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was indeed alive. Some of those who were with us went up to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And so Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Sometimes we're just slow to get what God's doing. But he's doing it nonetheless. Was it not necessary, Jesus continues, for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses... And and then with the prophets, Jesus explained to them all the things that were spoken of himself in scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going and Jesus acted as though he were going further. But they urged him and they said, stay with us for it's getting late and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he he took the bread and he blessed it and and breaking it, he began giving it to them and their, their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. Many of us have the same story where Jesus walks with us and he pursues us and then suddenly our eyes are open and we recognize him. And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? Perhaps some of you are here because your hearts have been burning with Jesus and he's trying to make himself clear to you. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and they returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with the eleven, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he, Jesus, was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And while they were telling these things, he, Jesus himself, stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. Jesus came to bring peace to you, for peace to be with you and for peace to be with me. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? It is I myself. Touch me 
and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. But when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it. And now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all these things which are written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and that's what the Lord does for us. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on that third day. And because of that, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to everybody, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of My Father upon you, which is the Holy Spirit. But you are to stay in this city until you are clothed with power from the Almighty. And then he led out as far as Bethany, or led, led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And as they should, they, after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God, which is hopefully why we're here today. Let's pray. Lord, what a great story. The greatest story ever told because it's a true story and it's the most important story that could ever be told. Lord, we thank You that the story is the fulfillment of what You promised You would do, but it's also an expression of how great Your love is for us that You would send Your Son to live a perfect life and to die as a substitute for us because we have fallen short of your holiness because of the sin that is within us. We do indeed worship Jesus Christ for what he has done for us. And it's in that mighty name that we pray and everybody said, Amen. So good to be with you guys. Thank you again for being here. Happy Resurrection Day. Let me open with this story. After our Bible story, this is the next story. On July 8, 1776, there was a chime that changed the world. It rang from the bell tower of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That chime was to invite the people of Philadelphia to hear the reading of the Declaration of Independence. This chiming bell marked the first public reading of that document, which was read by Colonel John Nixon. Perhaps you've seen the Liberty Bell, Liberty Bell. Perhaps you haven't. That's what it looks like, right? And if you have you know, a bell collector, I guess that'd be a good bell to have, right? This historic bell was commissioned from the London firm of Lester and Pack in 1752. And for over 100 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the Liberty Bell was transported to special events all throughout the country for people to, to touch and to see. This was discontinued as the crack in the bell was beginning to widen and people were chipping away pieces of the bell for souvenirs. The Liberty Bell made its last journey to the World's Fair in San Francisco in 1915. It resides under close scrutiny in Philadelphia, home of the First and Second Continental Congress. Perhaps you, like me, have been to Philadelphia to see this prominent symbol of freedom. Look at that good-looking man, a family. 
So, you know, when I, you know, we did this just a couple of years ago in July of 14, I think it was. And uh, like I said, you know, it's like, yeah, it's a nice bell. You know, if you're, you know, if you're a bell collector, that'd be a good bell to have, right? I mean, I get it. But I thought, it, I don't know why, I thought it was like 18 feet high. I don't know, right? I saw pictures and I just thought it was this huge thing. And so, you know, we got there and we paid our money to see the bell. And then I said, now what? I'm just so not into that kind of stuff. Like, I kind of get it, but I, it's just not my thing. But anyway, maybe you've been there. It's pretty cool. Do you know what is inscribed on the Liberty Bell? The Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly had Leviticus 25.10 placed on that bell. Leviticus 25.10 says this, Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all the inhabitants. Oh, that's a great message, isn't it? Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all the inhabitants. It's a good word. This passage from Leviticus is describing the year of Jubilee, which we don't have time to get into. And these important words to proclaim liberty to all the inhabitants of the land is the central theme of the year of Jubilee. And I don't know if the makers of the Liberty Bell understood that, but they certainly understood the value and importance of freedom and wanted this bell to serve as a reminder. For nearly 250 years, the Liberty Bell has done exactly that. In Hebrew, the, 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 Greek, or the Hebrew word for liberty is deror, D-E-R-O-R, deror. And it means freedom, or liberty, or release, or setting free. We serve a God that wants to give us liberty and freedom and to release us from something and to set us free. Jesus, in His first sermon, quoted Isaiah 61, verse 1. So Isaiah prophesies that Jesus is going to say this, that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. That's what our God does. He pursues us to bring us freedom. He pursues us to bring us liberty. He pursues us to set us free. We're, we're in Luke 24, but go back a couple chapters to Luke uh, chapter 4 to see what Jesus says when He preaches for the first time, how He quotes Isaiah 61, verse 1. Look at Luke 4, verses 17 through 21. Luke 4, starting in verse 17, and this is when Jesus is beginning His public ministry and He's going to preach for the first time. And so He goes to a synagogue and the, book of the, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him. And He opened up the book and He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He anointed Me to, bring, uh, to preach the Gospel to the poor. He has sent Me to proclaim release to the captives. He has sent Me to bring recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Apostle Paul tells us repeatedly that we are to rejoice in the liberty that is found in Jesus Christ. Just as the Liberty Bell has served us well for nearly 250 years to understand the value and the importance of freedom, so too the cross and the empty tomb of Christ has served for the last 2,000 years to remind us that we are reinstated to a relationship of restored unity 
with God and that we are set free from our sin when we put our hope, faith, and trust in Jesus Christ. No greater symbol than that, than the cross of Christ and His resurrection. I had to pay to see the Liberty Bell. Jesus paid for me to see the cross. Is that incredible? It's just incredible. We're going to look at Romans 6. We're going to read it, and I'm going to give you an outline, and then we're going to just hit those four stanzas in the rest of our time together. Turn to Romans 6. It's a little to the right of the book of Luke. You have Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Paul writes to the church in Rome. He says, what shall we say then? This is because, he's letting them know, because of what Christ did for our sins. He says, what what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Oh, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, identified with Christ, have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in a new life, in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, then for sure, certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. There was a time when I was a slave to sin. Not a pretty life. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with him, with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Christ. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all of us. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God because of what Christ did. Therefore, do not let sin reign or rule in your body so that you obey its lusts. Don't go continuing to present the members of your body to sin as instruments. And that word instruments, I'll get back to later, means weapons. Do not go on presenting your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you're under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? No, may it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of one of two things, of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed to God's Word and you have been freed from sin and you became slaves of righteousness. Now I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, the result of that was you got worse. Further sin, further impurity, further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness which results in 
further righteousness, which is what's called sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That wasn't even on your agenda, because you were a slave to sin. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from that? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, because of what Jesus did on the cross, now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have a benefit, which results in your sanctification, which is your growing holiness. And then the outcome of that is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. I would encourage you to live in Romans 6 if you have the time. Take an hour or two and just look at all the declarations and promises that God makes in Romans chapter 6. It will blow your mind. It will completely blow your mind. All the things that God promises us. Here's our outline of Romans 6. Four stanzas. The first stanza is that we're dead to sin. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are dead to sin. And then we're alive to God because of it. We're dead to sin, but we're alive to something. We're going to be alive to God or alive to sin. We're going to be dead to God or dead to sin. That's it. Those are your choices. And then from there, Paul's going to say, so now we need to work on how we present ourselves accordingly. How you present yourselves. What do you present yourselves to? What do you do with your time? What do you do with your life? You need to perfect your presentation. And then from there, he's going to say what the benefit package is for a life of sin and the benefit, benefit package for a life of righteousness. It's pretty cool. We're going to spend a little more time on the first stanza and then less time on stanzas 2, 3, and 4. Okay? So, look at verse 1. Verse 1 of Romans 6 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? From the very start of this chapter, Paul draws a line in the sand. There are two things that Paul is contrasting in verse 1. He's contrasting sin, which is found within us, with grace, which is extended to us. Sin is in us. Grace is extended to us. Sin comes from within. Grace comes from the outside. How does grace get extended to us? The cross. That's how grace gets extended to us. Sin's on the inside. Grace is on the outside. In other words, we need help from something outside of us. Because all that's inside of us is sinful. He doesn't contrast in verse 1, he doesn't contrast sin and don't sin, right? Hey, you're sinners, don't sin. He doesn't contrast that. He contrasts sin with grace. And he does so through the rest of the chapter. And what that means is this, that the only answer, the only cure, the only antidote to sin is what? Grace. That's it. We create the problem, God creates the solution. It's the only answer. It's not that we live a good life. It's not that I'm a good person. It's not that we treat people right. We're sinners. That's our condition. And the only antidote comes from the outside of us, which is grace found on the cross for what Jesus did for us as an act of His love and grace and mercy. It's never and will never be about anything that I do. It can never be anything about what I do. It never is anything about what I do. It's all about what the Lord has done for us by His grace, through Jesus Christ, on the cross, in His resurrection, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is also given to us. First Timothy, when 
Paul writes to Timothy in his first letter, because he wrote him two letters, in chapter 2, he says to Timothy, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, who is our Savior, who desires. This is God's desire. Have you ever had desires? You want your desires to happen, right? God desires all of us to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Because God knows that there is one God and one mediator the person that bridges the gap between us and God. One mediator also between that God and between us. And that's the person of Jesus Christ who gave Himself as a ransom for every one of us. Not some of us, not most of us, all of us. The testimony given at the proper time that He was displayed on a cross on a hill called Golgotha because it was for public display at the proper time. That was His testimony of His grace extended to us. So let's go back to this line in the sand, these two things that Paul contrasts in verse 1, sin and grace. It really is just a continuation of two camps. It's a continuation of the chapter before. Look at the last verse of chapter 5. Here's the two camps that Paul is saying between sin and grace. So that as sin, that can rule in your life, sin reigns or rules in death. Or, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through and only through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's it. All of us, everyone in this room, we're in one of two camps. We are either in the camp of sin or the camp of grace. The camp of sin or the camp of grace. But here's what's cool. We're not only set free from the destination of sin, what's the destination of sin? Death. What it really means is eternal wrath. It just means life without God, but it's continuing to live without God. It's a life of wrath. It's a life of eternal damnation. So we're not only set free because of the cross from the destination of sin, but from the dominion of sin, the power of sin in our lives because of what Jesus did on the cross. Check it out. That's what what those seven verses say. Let's read those again. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that more grace comes? May it never be. Not may it not often be. May it never be. How? How shall we who died to sin still live in sin? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we've been buried with Him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God, so we too might walk with a new life. And that's where we get born again. A new life. Being born from above. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin would be done away with. And that we are no longer slaves to sin. We have a new master. And that's what Lord means. Lord means Master. For he who has died is freed from sin. And I like how he ends that stanza, stanza 1 through 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. Freed means this. Listen, freed means (laughs) judicially vindicated as having complied with the requirements of a holy God. Do you know that God is holy? And for us to be in His presence, He has requirements for what that looks like. And we don't meet those requirements. Because we sin, and we're unholy, and we fall short. 
To be freed means to be judicially vindicated as having complied with the requirements of a holy God. So God says, why should I let you in? Why should I have a relationship with you? And you say, because of what Jesus did for me. He says, you're right. You're fully vindicated because of what Christ did for you. His blood covers all your sins. Because we are united with Him, which is what verse 5 says, because we're united with Him as a result of His grace extended to us, then and only then are we judicially vindicated. This just blows my mind. It just blows my mind. Paul wrote another letter. He wrote many in the New Testament, I think 13. And he wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. So his letter to the Ephesians. And that helps us pull all of this together. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. It's a little bit to the right. After Romans, you have First and Second Corinthians. And then you have Galatians and then Ephesians. Last service, I went to Philippians chapter 2 and I started reading. And I was very confused. But I caught myself. So I'm double-checking. I am in Ephesians chapter 2. All right, let's read verses 1 through 10. (laughs) Paul says, hey man, you you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. That was me. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, right, of the spirit that is still now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of what? Wrath. Even as the rest who do not obey God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, because that's all we can be, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then He raised us up with Christ and He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through your faith that you put in Christ. And even that is not of yourself. It is the gift of God not as a result of our works so that any of us might boast. We're as workmanship. We were created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in that kind of a lifestyle instead. And so I ask this question about sin. You don't have to answer if you're not sure. That's totally fine. If you want to risk it, risk it. Live on the edge. Is sin a condition or is it a choice? Is sin a condition Or is it a choice? Yeah, both. It's both. We're born into sin. We're all born with sin. But we can choose to keep that status as sinners. Or we can choose grace. It's a choice that we get to make every day. We're all sinners. That's what Romans says in Romans 3, that... Verse 23, for all have sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of God. So we're all sinners by nature. That's a condition that we're born with. But we can choose grace. We can choose that. It's both. As mentioned, the only cure, the only antidote to sin is grace. We must choose the grace of God. 
which was publicly displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's our first stanza. And then quickly, in the next three, we'll do the next three stanzas. Verses 8 through 11. So if we're dead to sin, we are what? We're alive to God. In verses 8 through 11. Just as we were dead to God because of our sins, we are now alive to God because of our identification with Jesus Christ. Death is no longer master over us. That's what verses 8 and 9 say back in Romans chapter 6. Let's read those. I've got to find Romans 6. So Romans 6, verses 8 and 9, right? That death is no longer master over us. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over us over him. So death is no longer master over us, but sin no longer has control over us. And we see that in verses 10 and 11. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he can now live to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God because of what Christ did. It's the only way. So how do we know if we truly belong to the Lord? How do we know if we truly belong to the Lord? Let me ask you a question. Is our life alive to God and dead to sin? That's one way to ask the question. How do I know if I have a good relationship with the Lord? These verses tell us. Is your life alive to God and dead to sin? Is your life alive to God and dead to sin? Or the opposite. Is our life alive to sin and dead to God? Is our life alive to sin and dead to God. Well, Pastor Mark, how how can I assess that? I'm going to help you. This is how we assess what we're alive to and what we're dead to. If we're alive to sin, this will tell us. If we're alive to God, this will tell us. Not me, not one another. We always point to God's Word, the truth that sets us free. God's Word reveals to us what it looks like and what it means to be alive to Him, but it also reveals what it looks like and what it means to be alive to sin. Otherwise, it's just what I think or it's what you think. Ugh, that's dangerous. What does God say? What does God tell us what it means to be alive to Him and dead to sin? What does His Word tell us of what it means to be alive to sin and dead to Him? Our third stanza about perfecting our presentation in verses 12 through 19. Look at verse 12. What's the first word that you see in verse 12? Don't be shy. Therefore, does everybody have therefore in their Bible? Right? Therefore. First word in verse 12 of Romans 6 is therefore. It was one of the greatest words in Scripture, and I always caution or, or, or encourage people to stop when they see the word therefore. No doubt you've heard the saying that anytime you see the word therefore, you should ask, why is that word there for? Because something was said prior to that. In other words, blah, 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 having said all that, therefore. So it causes us to look back. Paul is saying, therefore, therefore, because of what we know from verses 1 through 11, this then is how you should present yourselves. This is how you need to perfect your presentation. Look at verse 3. Right? He's looking back. When he says, therefore, he's saying something. Verse 3 says, or do you not know? Paul's saying you know, and then he says what he says in verse 3. 
Because you know this. Look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified. And then he does the same thing in verse 9. Knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he goes on and says more. Therefore, this is how we are to perfect our presentation. How do we present ourselves to a holy God? Therefore, verse 12 says, do not let. We can let or we cannot let. Therefore, because of all those things we know in verses 1 through 11, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it so that you obey its lusts. Because we know that sin leads to death. And verse 13 also says it. Do not go on presenting. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. Stop doing that. As instruments or weapons of unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And he says the same thing in verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, because you presented yourself to sin, resulting in death, or you present yourself to righteousness. And then he does the same thing in verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. And so, so often we wonder, why are things not copacetic with me and God? Why is God not this and why is God not that? It's like, well, how are you presenting yourself? We present ourselves to sin and dead, gnarly things happen and we wonder why. Well, how are we practicing or perfecting our presentation? What do we present ourselves to every day, every week, every month? Scripture teaches that our bodies are the Lord's temple. And He wants to use us, our bodies, our lives, for His glory. Scripture also teaches us that the body is the Lord's tool for building His kingdom. It's His temple, it's His tool. But as we just read here, that word instruments, the body is the Lord's weapon for fighting His enemies. We're His temple, we're His tool, and we're His weapon. But let me ask you this. I think oftentimes we stop at temple. Yep, the Lord lives within me. I am a temple of His. Okay, are you a tool also? Well, what do you mean? Are you helping to build the kingdom of God? We're all still here because the kingdom is not finished being built. And we're to be tools of His to continue to build the kingdom that He has called us to help Him build. And then from there, I hope that we can become weapons for Him. Because there's a real God and there's a real devil. And they're at odds with one another in case you haven't read the news. There's some gnarly stuff going on. We see it every day, a good and an evil a righteousness and a sinfulness. I don't want to just be the Lord's temple. <laughs> I want to be His tool and I want to be His weapon. And that sounds gnarly and nasty, but it's what He's called us to. Because of Christ, we now can give thanks to God because of what we were and what we have become. Because of what we were and because of what we have become. Check out verses 17 18 and 19. It tells us why we can be thankful. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became something. You became obedient to the form of teaching to which you are now committed and you have been freed from sin because you have become slaves. 
So there's three things that we have become that we can praise God for. We have become obedient in verse 17. We have become committed to the Word. And we become slaves of righteousness. And do you see how that all goes together? We become committed to God's Word. So that we can become obedient to God's Word. So that we become slaves of righteousness instead of slaves of sin. Oh, Warren Wearsby, he says this. This is heavy. Christian living depends on Christian learning. Duty is always founded on doctrine. If Satan can keep you and I ignorant, he can keep us impotent. How can I be a temple? How can I be a tool? And how can I be a weapon without the Holy Word of God? If he keeps us ignorant, he keeps us powerless. We don't know how God works. We don't know how we're supposed to work. We don't know what sin looks like. We don't know what righteousness looks like. It's all found in God's Holy Word. Amen? And our last stanza, the benefits package. Pretty simple. Let's read those verses, 20 through 23. Hey, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness because you were a slave to sin. Righteousness meant nothing to you. Therefore, what was the benefit of that? What's the benefit package that you are deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? The outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive a different benefit which results in sanctification, your growth, your holiness. And the outcome of that then is eternal life when you breathe your last. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life refers to eternal, fe- eternal fellowship with God. But it also means an endlessly unfolding purpose. Listen, an endlessly unfolding purpose in partnership with God. We're in partnership. We have a new CEO. We're on his team. We're in partnership with him. We're his temple. We're his tool. We're his weapons. Eternal life comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He said so himself in John 6. 47 and 48, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life, because I am the bread of life. Hey, listen. It's a fact of history. It's a fact of history. It's a fact of history that Jesus died on the cross. It's a fact. Nobody disputes it. Nobody. It's a fact of history also, though, that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that we have died with Him. That's a fact. And it's also a fact of history that when we have died with Him, then we have been freed from sin. That's a fact. Not only has Christ paid the penalty for sin, He's also broke the power of sin. He paid the penalty of sin, and He broke the power of sin. Can I get an amen? I'm done. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray as the worship team comes up to close us in a song. I'm going to pray for our time as we close. And I'm going to take a moment for us to make a choice. To stop choosing sin and choose grace. Stop choosing sin and choose grace. Okay, so while we're praying and while our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, I'm, just going, to, I'm going to lead us into a time where we can make a choice to choose grace as displayed on the cross by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we humbly come before You. We're blown away, Lord, by the ways that You work. But we shouldn't be, Lord, because You are God. And if on some level, Lord, we can't see how great You are and how vast You are, and at some level we don't fully understand everything, then You're probably not a God worth serving. 
And so we recognize through the Scripture and through the cross and through the resurrection that You are mighty and that You reach out to save us. You extend grace to us through Your Son who lived a perfect life and took the punishment for our sin upon Himself. And that the antidote to our sin which is inside of us is found outside of us in the person of Jesus Christ. And for that, we say thank You for Your grace. And right now, if, if the Lord's been pursuing you, if the Lord's been walking with you and disturbing you and, and, and pressing on you, whether it's been today or the last few weeks, the last few months, maybe it's been a few years or even decades, stop running from God. Choose His grace right now. Just tell the Lord, Lord, thank You for redeeming me. Thank You for sending Jesus for me. I choose Christ I choose grace. And I choose not to live in sin any longer. I choose not to let sin be master over me. God, we thank You that You chose us and You give us an opportunity to choose grace. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.